Holy Father, the great God in heaven who dwells among your people, we pray that you would come, dwell among us, and teach our hearts the whole counsel of God. Point us to Christ. Give us minds to understand your holy word, faith to believe it, and strength to obey it. By your spirit, we ask in Christ's name, amen. Amen. So today, we are talking about the altar and the courtyard of the tabernacle complex. And we're just going to answer two simple questions. What's the meaning of the altar? And what's the meaning of the courtyard? And uh, I think that their meanings absolutely are pertinent to us in our relationship with God now in Bellingham in 2019. And we got a lot to say about both those questions. So we're going to jump right into it. So two questions this morning. The first is this. What is the meaning of the altar? And, you know, I'd like to suggest that the altar was for two things. Forgiveness and fellowship. Forgiveness and fellowship, two things that are crucially important for our relationships with God. And so I want to talk about both of those. So first, the altar was the place of forgiveness. And you see there in verse 1 how it says, You shall make the altar of acacia wood. And the altar, you know, if you went into the tabernacle complex, the altar would have been the first thing that you saw. Uh, You'll notice later in the chapter, in verse 16, what it says, for the gate of the court, there shall be a screen 20 cubits long of blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twine linen embroidered with needlework. So around the tent, there was this fabric fence Uh, you know, a curtain that went around and made this courtyard. And in order to enter into the tabernacle complex, you would go through this kind of like purple screen that had, you know, embroidering all all over it. And right when you entered into the courtyard, the first thing that you'd see before you was the altar. And, you know, during times of sacrifices, there'd be hundreds of people, you know, families and children that were bringing animals into this courtyard to be Slaughtered, And, you know, they would go through this process where either the priest or the worshiper would lay their hands on the animal. And it was symbolizing that the guilt of their sin was being transferred to the animal. And when the animal was slaughtered, the animal was taking the punishment of the worshiper in their place and dying in their place. And so there was blood and there was smoke and there was a smell of burning flesh. And so you imagine, it's a very sensory experience. And so, you know, if you're an Israelite child and you grow up doing this throughout your childhood, throughout your adult life, it would have had a, made a profound impression on you. You know, you know, sensory things, you know, you smell something or you hear a song and it immediately brings you back somewhere. That, that's the kind of memory that is being put into the Israelites. That the first thing you need to know about having a relationship with God is you have to be willing to admit something is wrong with me. My sins need to be paid for. And if I'm going to be in God's presence, I need atonement, I need forgiveness. And the altar was the place of forgiveness. And, you know, it's not only that the altar was the first thing that you saw, but, you know, we'll see this later. The courtyard around the the tent was rectangular-shaped. And it was the size of exactly two perfect squares. If you took two perfect squares that were 70 feet by 75 feet, if you put two squares together, that was the size of the, of the tabernacle courtyard. And the two squares represented heaven and earth. So heaven is the place where God dwells, and earth is the place where man dwells. So the tabernacle was heaven and earth kind of overlapping, heaven and earth coming together. 
And if you went to the heaven portion, which was in the west, and let's say you made an X in that perfect square, at the center of the square would have been the Ark of the Covenant, which is like God's throne. God is enthroned on the cherubim. And what that tells us is, oh, what's the center of heaven? God's throne. That's what the center of heaven. And, but if you go to the earth square and you drew an X, what was at the center of the earth square? It was the altar. And this tells us that the altar is the center. God is saying what you need at the center of human life, of human society in the earth. What you need at the center of a marriage. What you need at the center of a, a friendship or a church community. What the, actually, what you need at the center of a work life. What you need at the center of a relationship with God is admitting that I was wrong. I'm sorry that I've offended you and receiving forgiveness. This is the centerpiece of, of human life together. And yet there is something in us that it deeply resists admitting those words, I was wrong. And, you know, actually I was just telling you that my family's been away on vacation for, for three weeks. And we, uh, one of the, our family sport is tennis. And we love to all go play tennis together. I have these baskets of balls where I, you know, take them out and I practice, have the kids practice their forehands and practice their serves. And, uh, and so we did that while we we're on vacation. And, you know, during the practice, the kids are hitting their balls and I'm yelling at them like, you know, get, bend your knees and get your racket back and, and keep your on the ball, hit the ball in the court, focus. And uh, afterward, Shannon came up to me and she said, you know, when every shot we're kind of being corrected about what we're doing wrong, you know, it makes this whole experience kind of stressful and tense. And you have this kind of tone when we're playing, it's supposed to be fun playing tennis together. And so, you know, I gave a pretty standard response. I said, well, that's fine. I just won't play tennis with them anymore. <laughs> She's like, you're not going to play tennis with them anymore? I said, well, yeah, if you don't like how I'm doing it, you can do it. Why don't you go play tennis with them? <laughs> now, I know it's real mature to say something like that, but uh, it took about an hour of not talking to each other before I was finally willing to admit, like, you know, my tone could probably be a little nicer while we're playing tennis. <laughs> Why is it so hard for us to say I was wrong? Now, this is just talking about my tone playing tennis in a, you know, a tennis practice. How about the areas where we feel our deepest shame and guilt about things that we've done in our life? How much more defensive are we about saying I'm wrong? And God says, my children, the altar is the first thing when you, you see when you come into my house because I want to teach you to be honest and humble about the ways you have wronged me and wronged the people in your life, but I also want to forgive you. I want to be reconciled to you, and I give you the altar as a place of forgiveness, a place to experience my grace. It's profound, and it left a profound memory in the, in, in the children of Israel when they came into God's house. Now, someone will hear that, and they'll say, well, you know, this is the thing that I don't like about Christianity. It's always talking about how guilty we are and we're sinners and we're supposed to feel so bad about who we are. And I think if you hear it that way, you're missing the second purpose of the altar. It's not only that the altar was the place of forgiveness, but also the altar was the place of fellowship. And, you know, reading a passage like this, it's easy uh, to miss things that are pretty plain in it. So, I, for example, look at verse 1. It says, You shall make the altar of acacia wood, Five cubits long and five cubits broad. So that's seven and a half feet by seven and a half feet. The altar shall be square and its height shall be three cubits. 
Now, what's being described there is a barbecue. I mean, I want you to imagine having a grill like this in your backyard. It's seven and a half feet by seven and a half feet. It's five feet tall. You need stairs to get up to it. I mean, you know, I, my sister actually is selling her house. She was selling everything in her house. I knew she had this Weber barbecue that I was kind of had my eye on. And she gave it to us. She's like, yeah, take the Weber barbecue. And I was like, I always wanted a Weber barbecue. Now it's like this centerpiece of my backyard. I'm so proud of it. But uh, it's nothing compared to Yahweh, the Lord of hosts, in his grill. Seven and a half feet by seven and a half feet. You have to do stairs to get up to it. And I'm not, I'm not being cute by saying this was Yahweh's barbecue. He, a huge part of the work of the priest was butchering animals, grilling meat, and serving food to worshipers. And you'll even notice actually in verse 3. What does it say in verse 3? You shall make pots for it to receive its ashes and shovels and basins and forks and fire pans. You shall make all its utensils of bronze. These are the grilling tools. Actually, you know, I, in my old barbecue, some of you have this in your, in your barbecue where the flame comes in like one spot. You have an old barbecue. And I would, I would grill on it with a fork so, you know, my knuckles are getting all burned. And one of our elders, Chris Van Hoffigan, was over once. And he's like, that just won't do it. And the next time he came with a new set of barbecue utensils for me, he's like, you need, you can be a grill master. You need barbecue utensils. That's what the Lord says to the priest. He's like, you're going to be grilling. You need the proper utensils to be, to be grilling at my house. And, and then it goes on in verse 4 and says, You shall also make a, for it a grating, a network of bronze, and on the net you shall make four bronze rings at its four corners. So this is a seven and a half foot by seven and a half foot grating. You put whole animals, multiple whole animals, on this grill. This is the granddaddy grill of them all. And what's really being described in this chapter is God's backyard. His house is too holy for people to just walk into. Only the priests get to go in the house. But he said, you can't come in my house. You can come into my backyard. And if you think Christianity is all about moping around about how sinful we are, what you're missing is the joy and the emotion that, you know, imagine summer barbecuing, you know, and you're with the people you love and you have this sense like, this should just, can we just freeze this? Can life just always be like this? Can it just stay like this? That's what God wants. He wants his children gathered around in joy in his presence. That's the goal of the altar. It's not only the place of forgiveness, it's also the place of fellowship. And, you know, when you're in your neighborhood and you can smell when your neighbor is grilling, and you're like, what house is that coming from? And do I know them? And am I being invited over to that? That's what it would have been like around the, around the tabernacle. You'd smell the aromas coming from the tabernacle, and you'd say the best meals that you had your whole life happened at the tabernacle with your whole family and your whole community around you, and you were in God's presence. And what this tells us is, yes, God insists that we are honest about our sins in the way that we've wronged him and others. We are not going to just put on a smile when there are things broken in our relationships. We are going to face them. That's what the altar says. But the goal of the altar is to return to fellowship. And you picture it, when you, when you picture the altar, you picture all these families scattered around. They're having picnics and they're eating together and, and they're going over to the other family like, hey, how's it going? Like, oh, it's good to be in the Lord's presence. And, and so the altar in the courtyard was not a sad, scary place where people were forced to go. What does King David say? Some of you know Psalm 84. It's a great line from King David. For a day in your courts, for a day in the courtyard is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God. I'd rather be a servant in that courtyard, waiting on people, than dwell in the tents of wickedness. 
It's my favorite place to be. And so first, what is the meaning of the altar? It is the place of forgiveness and the place of fellowship. So there's a soberness and an honesty about the brokenness of our lives and how we disobey God. And there is a joy and a welcome of feasting that come together. Honesty and joy in God's presence. That is what brought, is brought together in the, in the altar. It's powerful. But the altar was placed in the courtyard. And that leads to our, our second question. What is the meaning of the courtyard? And in some ways, we've already answered that. You know, the, it's, the courtyard is a place just outside God's house where his people gather to eat with him. It is like his backyard. Or someone said in first service, there's the front yard. And it's like, okay, his front yard, he has his grill in the front yard. You know, that is something. You know, so I, I just saw a video about a guy who put his grill in the front yard so the neighbors would come and eat there. And so maybe God does that. Um, but I want to talk about another interesting aspect of the courtyard. And you'll notice this passage gives a lot of details about the dimensions of the courtyard. So you see, for example, in verse 9, you shall make the court of the tabernacle. On the south side, the court shall have hangings of fine twin and linen, a hundred cubits long on one side. And so it gives description. This is what's on the south side. It says this is what's on the north side. This is what's on the west side. This is what's on the east side. And then there's a summary of the dimensions at the end of that paragraph, verse 18, where it says, the length of the court shall be a hundred cubits, the breadth 50, and the height five cubits with hangings of fine twine linen and bases of bronze. Now the important thing uh, to note is that the shape of the courtyard was rectangular. 150 feet by 75 feet. And I want to give you at least one reason why that's important. Uh, for the last uh, century or so, it's been a standard position of critical scholars to say that the tabernacle actually never really existed. So critical theory is an approach to literature that tries to take a text like this and find out what were the social pressures behind this text that caused it to be written. And so many scholars have said that, you know, about a thousand years after Moses lived, there were these group of priests after the Babylonian exile who were rebuilding Solomon's temple. They're trying to get all these people interested in Solomon's temple. So they wanted to give the temple this long history that went all the way back to Moses. So they made up this tent that was kind of like a precursor to the temple so that everyone would think, oh, the temple's really important. It has this long history. And so for a hundred years, scholars have been saying, oh, the tabernacle never even really existed. Well, uh, Ken Kitchen, Ken Kitchen is, is one, a leading Egyptologist. Uh, he's an expert in archaeology of the Levant in the, in the ancient world. And he's pointed out that actually a lot of other cultures had portable temples like the tabernacle. And so maybe the closest one to the tabernacle we have in the Bible is Ramses II, who's a pharaoh, who lived about, within 200 years of Moses. Um, he had a rectangular portable temple. It had a tent in it. The tent had two rooms, kind of like the, the tent in the tabernacle. And, uh, and, you know, you think about it, you say, well, where did the Israelites just come from? They just came out of Egypt. They were familiar. They'd been immersed in Egyptian culture for the last 400 years. Now, of course, there were important differences between the tabernacle in Exodus and Ramses' tabernacle. You know, Ramses lived in the most inner room of his tent, and the Lord says, no one lives in that room except for me, and the high priest gets to only come in once a year. So there's a big difference. But Kitchen goes on to say that the tents like this, the portable structures that were built in the first millennium, you know, when all these priests were living, were all round. 
And so if they were to look around and say, oh, I'm going to make up a, a, a tent a thousand years earlier, how would they have known that a thousand years ago, uh, tents weren't round, they were rectang rectangular? And that would have been a pretty lucky guess. And what Kitchen says is far more reasonable to say that Exodus is an authentic source and is historically reliable. And, you know, if I could add one more reason to believe that, uh, Moses lived during the Bronze Age, which ended in about 1200 B.C., and then, then was the rise of iron. And uh, what's everything made out of in the courtyard? Look at verse 19. All the utensils of the tabernacle for every use in all its pegs and all the pegs of the court shall be of bronze. This is a Bronze Age tabernacle. And so you might say, well, why is this important? Well, it's important to date Exodus, that this is during the time of Moses when we get this. But it also shows us how God desires to enter into human culture. Because, you know, when I say this tabernacle isn't that different than Ramses II's tabernacle, some of you would say, Israelites did not get their tabernacle from the Egyptians. It says in this passage where they got the, their tabernacle in the second part of verse 8. Look at what it says. As it has been shown you on the mountain, so it shall be made. God gave Moses the pattern for how to build the tabernacle. And so what, which is it? Does the pattern come from God or does it come from the Egyptians? Because they've been living in Egyptian culture. It's a false choice. And this paradox you find throughout the Bible. You know, take the Bible itself. Is the Bible the inerrant word of God, the, the one truth for all time for God's people? Or is it a cultural product that has certain languages and customs from certain periods of time and the personalities of its author woven into it? Which is it? It's both. <laughs> it's the word of God. It's, that's what's amazing. Who is Jesus? Is Jesus the uh, uh, eternal God who's above all other cultures and the one to whom all cultures will give an account? Or did Jesus enter into a specific culture and he has certain clothes and he spoke a certain language and he ate certain kinds of foods? Which one is it? It's both. That's the amazing thing. The God overall entered into human culture. It is the same with the worship of the tabernacle. God is entering a specific culture and he accommodates his worship to the culture of his people. And the pattern he sent to them is not one that would have been totally alien to them. The tabernacle had important differences from other ancient tents and showed that Israel's God was supreme to the other false gods. But the tabernacle both challenges the idolatry of nations and had some level of familiarity to it. And, you know, I should say, I think this paradox is an important part of our life together. You know, when we, if someone comes into this church, do we want them to say, these people are totally, you know, they believe the Bible, they believe in Jesus, their lives have been transformed by Jesus, they're totally different than us. Or do we want them to come in and say, you know, these are like Bellingham people. They're kind of like me. They could be my neighbor. I could work with them. I could be friends with them. Which one do we want them to say? We want them to say both. <laughs> We're both those things. We've been radically transformed by Jesus, and yet we fit in this culture because God wants to fit into this culture. And so this paradox is so important in the Bible. What it tells us is that the tabernacle is telling us the story of the whole Bible. Because when you get to the end of the Bible, what's the ending? The dwelling place of God is with man. What God is doing in Exodus 27 is the whole purpose of this world. 
heaven and earth coming together. The dwelling place of God and the dwelling place of man coming together. And every nation, every ethnic group will come and worship God in their own tongue, their own language, their own cultural expression. The diversity of human culture will not be erased, but will be sanctified and offered to God in glory. God is coming to dwell among the human cultures. And that story is why there's an altar, the place of forgiveness and the place of fellowship. And that is why there is a courtyard where he welcomes his people into his backyard. And this tabernacle is only a picture, a shadow of the profound depths that God will go to to dwell with us through Jesus, who is the true tabernacle. Jesus ultimately is the place where heaven and earth overlap. He's God and man reconciled in one person. Uh, He is the Lamb of God whose blood offers us forgiveness on the altar. And as those Israelite children were seeing the blood and smelling the flesh of the sacrifice, God was preparing them to recognize the true sacrifice when he came and died for them on the cross once and for all. Jesus is the screen or the gate through whom we enter God's house and presence. Jesus is the true altar who uh, feeds us with his own body and blood. And so we study these strange passages for that one purpose, that they might lead us more deeply to him. And we learn that God is truly good and desires to have all of his children gathered together in his backyard, in his presence, filled with joy, knowing their sins are forgiven and that they are his. That's the meaning of the altar. That's the meaning of the courtyard. Praise be to God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we praise you for your word. Nothing else speaks more deeply to the longings of our soul. You know our brokenness. You know our longing for fellowship. You know the hope it gives us that you would come and dwell among human cultures And so we praise you that we can look to the person of Jesus and all the good news of this passage is tied up in him. Give us hearts to believe in him, to trust in him. We pray in Christ's name, amen.